Future City is made possible by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive. I'm Wes Moore, and welcome to Future City, a show that reframes the question from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next. Each month, we look to another U.S. city that's doing something innovative and ask the question whether that idea could work here. Now today, our first show of the Trump administration, we turn to a question that's all over the news and a burning issue for millions of people living in the United States, whether illegally or legally. Sanctuary. That's a word whose definition varies from place to place, and it's become an especially loaded one lately. But basically, sanctuary cities are places that limit how local law enforcement can cooperate with federal immigration agents. The idea being, if you are one of an estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants living in this country, but you're not doing any bad stuff here, local law enforcement and government agencies should more or less leave you alone. So if you break the law, commit a felony, and you wind up in jail, you'll likely get deported. But if you don't, if, like most of us, you largely obey the law and your encounters with law enforcement are minor traffic tickets or nonviolent arrests, your local law enforcement should treat you pretty much like any other American, which means even if ICE, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, asks them to, the cops won't hand you over to the feds to be deported over something small. Faith communities started the sanctuary movement in the early 1980s, and when President Trump took office last month, according to a New York Times analysis of data from the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, at least 39 American cities, 633 counties, and five states had made laws that limit local cooperation with federal immigration agents. Now, that list does not include Maryland, and while it does include Baltimore, it's complicated here, as we'll talk about more in a minute. But for a lot of the places that designated themselves as sanctuary jurisdictions, though, it was really important. And not in just a lefty moral way, but in a practical, economic, law enforcement perspective, it made whole immigrant communities less afraid to call and cooperate with the police or with the fire department if something went wrong. That's why many police departments have advocated for sanctuary laws. But Donald Trump's presidential campaign was built on the notion that foreigners and outsiders and others were the root of nearly all of America's problems. And one of the ways he justified that assertion was to cite examples, like one we'll hear about in San Francisco, of a small number of American citizens killed by undocumented immigrants. Five days into his presidency, Trump issued a sweeping executive order that threatened to withhold federal funds from sanctuary communities. The order said, and I quote, Sanctuary jurisdictions across the United States willfully violate federal law in an attempt to shield aliens from removal from the United States. These jurisdictions have caused immeasurable harm to the American people and to the fabric of our republic. End quote. Last week, ICE agents mounted deportation raids in at least six states, rounding up hundreds of undocumented immigrants and initially lied about it in an official statement to the American public. ICE eventually claimed responsibility for actions in Atlanta, Chicago, New York, the Los Angeles area, and North and South Carolina, but immigrant advocates say they also happened in Florida, Kansas, Texas, and Northern Virginia. Community members say they know of one person deported right here in Baltimore, snatched in a traffic stop in Highlandtown. 
It was the first large-scale enforcement of Trump's executive order, and it has left people across this country panicked because it went farther than they had feared. It didn't just target, quote-unquote, bad hombres, as Trump had derogatorily referred to undocumented immigrants convicted of crimes. Many of the people picked up hadn't committed any crime. As the Washington Post put it, the raids sent shockwaves through the immigrant communities nationwide amid concerns that the United States government could start going after law-abiding people. Here in Baltimore, on Sunday, hundreds of people marched through Highlandtown to protest, and there's a move to make Maryland a sanctuary state. And counties like Howard are struggling mightily with this issue. As they do, on this episode of Future City, we'll look at what's happening here in Maryland and consider the example of a city on the opposite coast that's leading the legal challenge to the president's order, San Francisco. Joining me now in the studio is reporter Rachel Bay, who covers Maryland politics here at WYPR. Rachel, it is great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So so can you just walk us through a little bit about the dynamics of here in Baltimore? Because it's not an official sanctuary city, even though it acts like one. Can you explain what that is? Right. Well, the city officials, the mayor, calls it a welcoming city. That's the term they use. And and really, the distinction comes down to jurisdiction over the city detention center. It's actually a state-run facility. So as a result, usually when you talk about a sanctuary city, you talk about whether the jail, when they detain someone, can defer to the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, uh, as to whether they will hold them for additional time while ICE investigates their immigration status. Since the city doesn't actually have jurisdiction over the jail, they don't get to make those decisions. That's left up to the state. So so explain to me how that works. I'm, I'm in Highlandtown, and I am arrested by police officers who are the city's jurisdiction. These are the city's employees. Brought to the city jail, but now I fall under state jurisdiction. Right. So the correctional officers who work at the jail are state employees, not city employees. So so when you get arrested, you get fingerprinted, your record gets sent to the FBI, and F- the FBI shares that information with the Department of Homeland Security, the parent agency for Immigration and Customs Enforcement. If there's a flag that comes up for ICE, they may issue what's called a detainer request. Uh, Effectively, they say, we need some additional time to investigate this person. Can you continue to hold them until we tell you you can let them go or we tell you that we want, we have a warrant for them and we're going to take them into custody? Whether someone honors these detainers effectively is under the definition that the city officials are saying that is what determines whether someone is a sanctuary city and whether a city is a sanctuary city. It's whether they are, have the decision-making authority to determine whether they honor these these requests, which advocates say violates the Fourth Amendment right to be given a warrant signed by a judge before they are detained by federal agents. So then to be clear, if um, Governor Hogan then complies with the executive order, does it matter if Baltimore is a welcoming city or not? No. I guess when you talk about whether it matters, it's really about the executive order relates to funding, federal funding. And the real question is not how does how do city officials see Baltimore, but how does the Trump administration, how does the Department of Homeland Security see Baltimore? So if 
Baltimore officials are saying we are not going to comply with requests from ICE. Whether they actually really have the authority to do that or not, that's going to answer the question as to whether Baltimore loses funding. And then at the same time, even if Baltimore officials are saying we're not going to go out of our way to help ICE beyond what is legally required of us, even if Baltimore officials are saying that, they don't really get to make that decision. That that decision is left up to the governor's administration. Uh, and so backing up, Governor Martin O'Malley had a policy of not complying with these detainer requests. And when Governor Larry Hogan entered office, that was one of the first things that he did was he reversed that policy. So for the city of Baltimore, I mean, th- this is a much bigger question than simply the idea of complying with ICE. There's actually real constitutional questions about what is then authorized and allowed to do, particularly because of the, the details of the, the state function and the state relationship with the city jail. Yes. So these detainers, they're effectively a request for someone to be held beyond what the judge is saying the length of time the judge sets for them to be held. So if someone makes bail or is released under whatever terms, under normal circumstances, that person would be allowed to be released. But if, if Immigrations and Customs Enforcement comes in with a request that they be detained an additional 24 hours, an additional 48 hours, some cities and most jurisdictions around Maryland will comply with that request. But Advocates, for example, at the ACLU and at a lot of immigration advocacy groups, they will say that that's not actually in compliance with the law because the law allows someone to not be held beyond the terms of the warrant that was issued by a judge for their arrest. Um, And it it gives them the right to not be held without being charged with a crime. And at that point, that's effectively what they would be doing. Even if they were charged with the terms of their arrest, they haven't been charged with an immigration violation yet. There's been no warrant issued. So they're being held beyond what is allowed effectively under the Fourth Amendment. That's the argument that the advocates make. And so much of this stuff is happening in real time right now because, you know, we're watching the state actually taking up bills on this as well. Can you talk a bit about what's happening on the state level to address this issue? There are a few different bills, actually, on the state level. And one of them would take what the city wants to do. Basically, the city wants to tell law enforcement to comply with federal law, but at the same time, not go out of their way to help immigration enforcement officials, not ask people for their immigration status, not make any record of their immigration status. So there's a bill right now in the state Senate uh, that has not had a hearing yet. So it's really in the preliminary stages at this point that would expand those rules effectively, that lack of compliance with the immigration officials to a statewide level. So no law enforcement in the state would be permitted to seek out immigration-related information for any individual that they stop. They would not be allowed to basically go above and beyond what their specific law enforcement duties are to help immigration enforcement is is, is kind of the way the, the... legislators would probably describe this bill. It's called the Maryland Trust Act, um, with the idea that if local law enforcement around the state begin to act as an extension of immigration enforcement, that victims of crimes and witnesses of crimes who may or may not have legal immigration status will be less likely to come forward. They won't have trust in their local police agencies and our local police officials. Um, and so that's that's one of the bills that's moving right now in the state legislature. There is also a bill that just pertains to 
public uh, universities and college campuses around the state that would kind of do the same thing. It would require the, the schools to, you know, comply with federal law, but outside of what the federal law actually requires, not release any records about immigration status of their students um, so that students may feel safe on university campuses um, and may feel safe on college campuses in the state. This is WYPR reporter Rachel Bay, our in-house authority on Maryland politics. Thank you for joining us and thank you for helping to add a sense of clarity as to what's going on here and, and, and around the state. So thank you so much. My pleasure. If you're just tuning in, this is Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. We now turn to a colleague of Rachel's, joining us by phone from San Francisco. Marisa Lagos is a reporter for public radio station KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. And she's been covering the fallout from President Trump's executive order and the lawsuit San Francisco filed to challenge it. Marisa, it's great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. So first, I, I wanted to ask you about a, a high-profile murder in, uh, in San Francisco uh, by an undocumented immigrant, which really became the prime example that Donald Trump talked about on the campaign trail, uh, referenced during his acceptance speech at the nomination. Can you tell us a little bit about that crime and what happened? Yeah, so this was a really tragic incident in which an undocumented immigrant who had repeatedly been deported and come back into the United States uh, allegedly stole a gun out of a federal agent's car who had left it there unsecured, uh, took it and either fired it intentionally or unintentionally, uh, striking and killing a young woman named Kate Steinley. Um, the fact that this man had been in and out of the immigration system and previous to this actual crime had been released by San Francisco Sheriff's Department really became a rallying cry for sort of hardline immigrant folks um, who saw this as just evidence of the sort of dangers that so-called sanctuary city policies pose. And it was uh, repeatedly invoked by President Trump on the campaign trail. Um, Interestingly, I would say it's like that and some other cases in uh, the Bay Area that we've had. You know, there was also, yes, the sheriff did release this man, but there was also ample uh, opportunity in some cases for federal agents to get involved. But I think a lot of the focus has been on the local response or lack thereof. So so speaking of the local response, um, can you help me to understand how different it is there than where we are here? Um, so as you might have uh, might have heard, uh, Baltimore is a sort of quasi-sanctuary city uh, because our state has a jurisdiction over a jail uh, in, in the city that, uh, that the city does not have any financial jurisdiction over. But for more than three decades, San Francisco has been known as a sanctuary city. So practically, what exactly does that mean that San Francisco is a sanctuary city? Yeah, so just a bit of quick context. Yeah, this, these, these uh, sanctuary policies came about in the 1980s when there was a lot of folks fleeing uh, Central American civil wars. And there was a sense that, you know, if the federal government under Reagan would not give them amnesty, that cities and counties should sort of step up and do so. What it's morphed into is a sense by a lot of folks, including in San Francisco and the Bay Area and California generally, that if local law enforcement are seen as being an arm of, you know, federal immigration agents, they won't be trusted by local immigrant communities, and therefore crimes won't get reported or people won't access hospital services or other things. So in San Francisco, there's actually been policies and laws on the books for three decades, basically telling local law enforcement, particularly our sheriffs and the jails, don't hang on to folks just because they have uh, a request out from immigration agents. Do not sort of go out and ask people for their papers. Um, and as I said, you know, this is actually not just San Francisco, but LAPD in Los Angeles was one of the first 
police departments in the nation to have this kind of directive to its officers. Um, and in recent years, because of a lot of things, including, quite frankly, President Obama's crackdown on immigration issues, there's actually been an expansion of these laws and policies at the local and now state level. But we saw that after Donald Trump became the president and signed his executive order, that uh, that San Francisco was the first city to challenge it with a lawsuit. Yeah, so, I mean, I think this is something that folks here in uh, San Francisco and around the state have really been gearing up for since, you know, November. Um, they knew that President Trump had threatened to try to strip money away from these cities and counties if they held on to these sanctuary policies. And so uh, the city attorney here did file a lawsuit, essentially taking aim at the executive order Trump issued a few weeks ago that said that they would withhold federal grants from sanctuary jurisdictions. You know, there's a lot of ambiguity about what that means, and I think that that's going to be part of the lawsuit is what is the definition. What the city attorney says is, look, we actually comply by what the executive order says, which is that uh, local officials do communicate with ICE agents. They'll tell immigration if they have somebody. Um, they automatically send fingerprints of every single person who's booked into jail here to the feds. What they won't do is hold on to somebody if they were supposed to get let out of jail anyway for whatever local crime they've been held on. They're not going to hold on to them for days or weeks so that ICE can come pick them up. And so that's kind of the crux, I think, of what San Francisco is pushing back on. And when you say that you've been gearing up for this since since November, when you look at the actual wording of the executive order, is it about what people thought was coming? Because I think the understanding that many people have was actually the executive order uh, is is even more restrictive and stringent than people even figured would be coming down the pile. I, I think that it's really vague, and so it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, I think that unlike some of the other orders, it seems like they did really have lawyers sort of go over this with a fine-tooth comb and try to write it in a way that put the federal government within sort of court precedent, because there has been previous uh, cases where, say, a state can't be punished under a Supreme Court decision over Obamacare, for example, by withholding all of their money for health care if it doesn't have to do with Obamacare. So I think that they know that there's some kind of limitations to what the federal government can threaten. And I think that this order was written pretty narrowly. However, we don't know if Congress is going to follow up or, or what sort of policy comes out of this order, right? So I think that the city attorney in San Francisco is trying to get a uh, sort of ahead of things, because no money has actually been withheld yet. Um, and they're saying, we stand to lose a lot of money, and we want to sort of preemptively challenge this order without seeing really what the Trump administration is threatening to withhold. But but has an implementation already begun? Uh, you know, weren't there, you know, ha- what happened last week? And have there already started, uh, have we already had documented raids that have taken place? Yeah, so we've seen um, what advocates are calling an uptick in immigration and customs enforcement rates in uh, throughout California, mostly in L.A. I mean, it's really hard to know if these are related to the order or if it's just sort of business as usual. I mean, you know, President Obama deported an unprecedented number of people, so this isn't completely new, but I think there's a lot of questions. I mean, the sanctuary city issue is really about whether or not the feds will try to punish cities like San Francisco by withholding police funding or other sort of direct federal funds. And and they haven't actually done that yet. They've just said they're going to. Marisa Lagos is a reporter with the public radio station KQED in San Francisco. Thank you so much for being with us and for adding that context to this conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me to be on the program. I'm Wes Moore, and you're tuned in to Future City. Now let's take a break, but when we come back, we'll hear more from folks on all sides of this sanctuary question, right here in Maryland, and the results of the most authoritative study to date that's looked at the question. Do sanctuary cities actually have more crime? All that ahead 
Stay with us. I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. We're talking this hour about sanctuary cities, jurisdictions that limit how much their local law enforcement cooperate with the feds to detain illegal immigrants. Joining us now by phone is Liz Alex, Regional Director of Casa Baltimore, an immigrant advocacy organization here in the city. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you. So your organization could not be more deeply connected to the Latino community here in Baltimore, and that's a community that will be profoundly affected if these ICE raids continue. After last week, how are people feeling? So I think there's no question. People across the board, across the country, and across the region that we're working in are scared. They're nervous. They're fearful for what could happen to them and their families. And on the other side, we're also hearing allies of those communities, right? Their, their school teachers, their uh, pastors, their neighbors, also nervous and, and wanting to know what can they do to help because they're recognizing the potential injustice uh, in a system that depo- that's going to deport these people that they know and love. Now, one thing we saw during, during the Obama administration, there, there were a kick-up in, uh, in, in deportations. Uh, does right now feel different, even from what we saw with this kick-up of deportations in the Obama administration? I would say on the ground that uh, people are feeling it differently, uh, and that's probably in large part due to you know all of the rhetoric during the election year, yeah. uh, the way in which the executive orders were announced, and also the sort of very broad brush uh, by which the new administration is painting someone who is a criminal or a priority for deportation, right? Mm-hmm. He's painting that category to include people with relatively minor traffic offenses uh, as the category of criminals who need to be deported as a priority for the safety of our country. Got it. Well, so, so can you help me to understand why being a, a sanctuary city, or in the case of, of Baltimore, a, a welcoming city, why does that matter? Uh, and why does that wording specifically matter, particularly to, the, to, to your clients? And, uh, and what are some examples that you've seen where, uh, where that specific wording can make a difference in their lives? So I think, and you know, we're hearing this from people every day, people want to know If I call the police because I'm a victim of a crime or because I need help or if I'm stopped by the police driving or walking uh, in my neighborhood, could that result in my deportation? So the, the question is, do I have to only be worried about immigration or do I now also have to be worried about every police officer that I might encounter? Um, and that, as you can imagine, could have a real dampening effect on police community relations, which in a lot of places are strained to begin with, right? Uh, But I I know, especially here in Baltimore City, people have been working very hard. The police commissioner and his team have been working very hard to make sure that people do call the police and really instructing and training his officers to not inquire about immigration status, to keep those lines of communication open so that real community policing can happen, right? Because we know a neighborhood in which nobody feels comfortable calling the police is a neighborhood that is really great for criminals who want to victimize uh, vulnerable populations. So when people come back and they give the example and they say, well, you know, I heard I heard the president talking nonstop about these examples of American citizens being killed by undocumented immigrants. What's your response to that? When, when we look at numbers, right, it's significantly more likely uh, that someone will be killed 
any any victim of a murder in this country or even of an accident fatality is much, much, much more likely to have been killed by a fellow American citizen than by an immigrant, documented or not. There's also data around uh, locations with high densities of immigrant populations and public safety overall, and that data is actually the complete inverse, right? Cities and towns that have very very large first-generation foreign-born populations are some of the safest cities in our country. And that's in large part because people come here and they are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to follow the law. They're trying to pay their taxes and do everything right because they want to become American. And so, you know, I think there's rhetoric and there's fact. And in this case, um, when we look at the facts, they don't support the president's assertion that people are very likely to be at high risk of being victimized by immigrants. And we, we've watched this thing, uh, you know, really take off, not just here in, in Maryland, but um, but really throughout the country where you're watching thousands of people out, out protesting. Uh, you know, this becoming a very personal issue, even for people who this might not be a personal issue to them. Uh, you know, what has been what has been your reaction to the response that we've seen to uh, to these developments and how the community has mobilized behind this? I mean, I think daily I my heart continues to be warmed by the random calls that we're getting from people who don't even know an immigrant, but are saying, I want to, I want to support you in any way that I can. What can I do to help? Because people are feeling, I think their sense of basic justice and fairness uh, is being questioned. They're, they're questioning, I guess, whether our national values right now are reflective of our own personal values around justice and fairness and, and also values around family and, and keeping families together. And I think as more and more of these stories that are not all new, right, but what is new is the tone that is coming out of the White House and sort of perhaps the intensity of the stories. As those stories begin to reach new households and new neighborhoods and new towns and cities across the country, more and more people are stepping up and saying, this this is not the America that I believe in, right? The America that I believe in um, has things like due process and tries to, and has a value of keeping our families together and not criminalizing people based on the color of their skin or the, the economic circumstances in which they were born. If you're just joining me, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. Our topic today, Sanctuary Cities. On the phone with me is Liz Alex, Regional Director of the Immigrant Advocacy Group, CASA, for both Baltimore and Pennsylvania. So, so Liz, when you think about where things are right now, and this is all happening in very much real time, not just for your organization, but also for the families that you serve, uh, what are the next steps for your organization, and what are things you're going to be working on uh, in the immediate future? So we have been and will be continuing to ramp up um, workshops in the community, in schools, in churches, in community centers, uh, so that people know their rights because in this country we do have a constitution and everybody uh, on American soil does have some basic constitutional rights. Uh, so we will be uh, explaining that to people, explaining what those rights are and how to exercise them. We're also helping families to begin to make what we call family safety plans, which are, you know, planning for the worst and, and hoping that it doesn't get to that, right? But planning for the worst in the case that they are detained, what would they want to happen? Who would be able to care for their children? for a short term or a long term, what information, what documents would a friend or family member need to be able to access quickly to help them access legal counsel, for example, um, and beginning to get those things in place to help protect their families. And this is especially, I think, poignant um, when, we, when we talk to parents of young children who are, and the children are U.S. citizens, they're born here, you know, they're, they're beginning to think about that hard decision of what would I do if I were deported? Would I want my children to come with me? 
or would I want my children to remain in this country? You know, where would they be better off? And that's a really, really hard thought for any parent to have to be thinking about. Um, but we're, you know, we're hearing the parents discuss that with their own families and in their own communities to begin preparing for the worst. At the same time, you know, we're encouraging people to fight back and to, to begin to organize within their communities so that we all can be more vigilant to make sure that there are not civil rights being violated, that people are, uh, that ICE agents, when they are in the community, are in fact following the law and are not uh, acting as rogue agents. Uh, the more that we as an entire community are vigilant to that, the more we can call it out when it does happen. Um, as well as begin to or continue to pressure our local and state elected officials uh, to do everything that's in their power to ensure that cities like Baltimore don't change their policies around being a welcoming city, that places like our schools and our police department and our uh, local health centers continue to be places that are open to everyone and where those lines of communication remain open, because that's really the vital fabric of our neighborhoods and our communities. So I think the more our local elected officials and our state elected officials are hearing the real stories of people and understand just how much is at stake, uh, the more they give them sort of the energy and motivation that they need to begin to fight back at the local level, at the state level, and ultimately at the national level to see what can we do as a state and as a community to fight back against policies that we believe are unjust. You talk about planning for the worst, and it makes me think of what happened, uh, you know, the, this weekend with the march in Highland Town when hundreds of people showed up to protest for immigrant rights. But also one of the things that was discussed was uh, while there have not been, you know, massive raids here in Baltimore, uh, you know, last week like there were in other cities, that one person was snatched up in a traffic stop and deported. Uh, is that what you're hearing as well? We have heard, we've definitely got a, a, a significant increase in phone calls, of reporting immigration enforcement, most of them to this date that we've been able to verify have been targeted. They've been targeted to people who fit under the new criteria of priorities for deportation that I alluded to earlier. Uh, But that list, as I mentioned, is now much wider than it used to be. Uh, So people with minor traffic violations can be included in that list of high priorities for deportation. That said, the way that ICE has mostly been carrying out their enforcement appears to be similar and targeted, right, where they're looking for specific people uh, based on their history, whether it's, uh, you know, a past traffic violation or, or a past immigration violation, and, and finding those individual people. That said, now at this point, you know, it's estimated that almost 75% of the total undocumented population in the country could fall within that high-priority category. Uh, so that net is pretty wide, and we'll have to see. Uh, exactly how that plays out locally in Baltimore. That's Liz Alex, the Regional Director of Casa Baltimore. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City on WYPR. Now, after the break, we'll talk with Howard County Executive Alan Kittleman, who has vowed to veto a measure just passed effectively making his county a sanctuary jurisdiction. And after that, we'll hear from University of California professor Tom Wong about his research into whether sanctuary cities are more or less safe than other cities. Stay with us.
I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. Welcome back to the show. So we're talking today about sanctuary cities and counties, which have become a hot-button issue since one of President Trump's first executive orders stripped funding away from them. Now we're going to go a half hour to the west of Baltimore, to Maryland's Howard County, where recently a debate has been raging about whether they make the county a sanctuary jurisdiction. Earlier this month, the county council finally voted 3-2 to two to do so if they stripped the word sanctuary out of the bill. Howard County Executive Alan Kittleman has said he will veto it, and he joins us now by phone to talk about why. Thank you so much for joining us, County Executive. It's very nice to be with you, Wes. Thanks. Thank you. So now, so just briefly, before we get to the decision that you've made, uh, can you help set the scene for us? And how did this become an issue uh, in Howard County, and what was the debate like? Well, the... Uh how it became an issue, you have to ask the, the council sponsors. Um, uh, they filed legislation uh, without talking to any key stakeholders in Howard County, just kind of filed it on their own. And uh, uh, having Howard County become a sanctuary county is what initially it said in their whereas clauses. And basically uh, now not, not allowing any county employee, including police officers, to uh, ask anyone about their immigration status. And it, it became a big issue because a lot of people, it's a very controversial thing, especially now with some things that are happening on the federal level. Uh, but what was very unfortunate about it was that there wasn't a problem in Howard County. <laughs> the immigration advocates that I talked to, some who have been working in Howard County for 17 years, uh, advocating for foreign-born community, told me there's never been one complaint in 17 years about county employees, specifically the police, uh, doing anything such as that. And so it was very frustrating that we had to have this controversial issue play out in Howard County when there really wasn't an issue to begin with. Um, it's just, it really brought a lot of nerves, a lot of people's concerns, I'm sure a lot because of the anxiety from the federal level, but Howard County has never had that issue before. So, so it's, it's really interesting because, you know, if you look at the, the Howard County Times, their editorial board, you know, called your plan to veto the bill a, a, a very wise move. Uh, and they called you a voice of reason on immigration policies and building an inclusive community. Uh, what is it about this bill or this issue that you think people misunderstand about it? I think what they misunderstand is that telling our county employees they can't do it, there's there several things. First, it's insulting to our county employees. Uh, they don't ever do that. I mean, I've carried on the same policies as the prior administration. We don't ask people. We don't, we're not enforcing federal immigration law. Uh, Howard County police officers don't do that. Howard County employees don't do that. They never have. And, and as long as I'm here, that's not our job. We're not going to be doing that. One thing also, it, it, it causes, I guess, an, an undue sense of... Uh, a false sense of security, I guess you could call it, with some people in our community because, unfortunately, or fortunately, maybe someone's views, I don't, I don't control the federal government. All I can do is make sure our county employees uh, do things that I think are appropriate. So we can't stop the federal government from what they're doing. Uh, and also, it actually does impede our public safety. Uh, we had our police chief, who, again, oversees a police department that does not inquire about immigration status. Uh, but there are times when there could be instances where we have some really uh, difficult criminal cases to deal with where they do work with federal agencies. And I thought to myself, why would you want to stop them from using the, working with those federal agencies when there isn't a problem with how we deal with the day-to-day individuals in our county? Well, that's interesting because you bring up this idea of the false sense of security. Yeah. Uh, so, so what exactly do you mean by that? You know, in, in terms of an example of what that means, where people will feel a sense of safety, but the, the, the feds uh, wouldn't necessarily come comply with that. So what, what exactly does that mean in terms of What I mean by that is there's nothing that Howard County could do to stop the federal government. If the federal government wants to come to Howard County, then they want to do you no know, raids or whatever. I can't stop them from doing that. Our county council can't stop them from doing that. Our police department aren't going to work with them to do that. Our police department aren't going to be participating in the raids. So 
to tell somebody, okay, now now you're safe. Don't worry about it. Howard County has, has done this legislation. You don't have to worry anymore. Well, that's a false sense of security because we can't stop the federal government from doing it, and we're not enforcing it anyway. So you're telling them that they don't need to worry when we were never doing anything, and we certainly can't stop the federal government should they want to come and do something. And so when you think about how this measure would work, and particularly, you know, vetoing the measure, do you have any evidence or do you think that vetoing this measure will make Howard County safer? No question in my mind. I mean, we've had our police department, who everyone respects, the police chief, uh, all the council members, I believe, respect the police chief. We've had our correctional department uh, director and others say that this bill doesn't help us in public safety. It actually makes us less safe. And when you think about it, it even makes those who are here undocumented less safe. I mean, the whole point is that my job as a Howard County executive, which is true with almost, I think, with every executive, whether it be from the president down to my level, our most important job is to keep our our residents and our citizens safe. And I'm not going to give up, not power, I'm not going to give opportunities to make sure that we can keep people safe to pass a bill that really doesn't change how we deal with undocumented individuals who are not committing crimes. So for that, for that family inside of Howard County right now who might fall into this status, yep. uh, you know, why exactly would they feel that this is a measure that would benefit them in this context? You know, when it, when it comes down to really making sure that they, they feel a genuine sense of security, what type of things do you think need to be in place to make them feel a, a more genuine sense of security? Well, again, this is why I wish the uh, council members who sponsored the bill would have talked to people first. Uh, our police department has a long history of working with FERN, which is our foreign-born information referral network, with Hope Works, which is our sexual assault domestic violence center, working with them to understand what issues are out there. Uh, FERN, representatives from FERN, come to every one of our academies with our police to help our new recruits understand how they can better relate to the foreign-born community. They continue to meet with our police officers even after they've gone through the academy. So we've been doing this for years. We have tremendous community outreach. So had they talked to the police chief, they would have understood all that. And so I'm not saying things can't get better, and I'm not saying we aren't going to try to do more to educate people and make sure they understand how things are done in Howard County. But, you know, even the folks who are the most most strongly advocates for uh, the immigration community would tell you that our Howard County Police Department, our Department of Community Resources and Services, and others go above and beyond what most people would expect to make sure that we treat everybody with respect and dignity, regardless of their immigration status. As the as the different bills are coming up around the around the state around the, around this issue, what is it that you hope that the state understands about Howard County and that the state understands about this population? I think that people need to realize that that Howard County is a tremendous county where we care about every single person who resides here. That you know, Columbia was formed 50 years ago, actually this year, 50 years ago, as a planned community where people could feel welcome to come here and live from different diverse cultures, uh, different ethnicities, nationalities, religions. Howard County is a place where we care about people and we work together. And when we have an issue such as we had one with our sheriff recently, and we found out some really disturbing things about his office, we rose up bipartisan in a bipartisan manner to, to, to get him to leave office. And that's how we act here. If something comes up, we work together to stop it. And we do that all the time. And so I would hope that the people in the state of Maryland would see the same thing and that we would stand up to, to individuals who might seek to cause division in our communities, who might seek to cause harm to people who live here, but at the same time <laughs> making sure that we know that, that we need to, to respect the folks who are in our police department and our county agencies, that they will uh, continue to keep us all safe. 
That's Howard County Executive Alan Kittleman. County Executive Kittleman, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. No, I appreciate it, too. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. So today we're talking about sanctuary cities, and we've arrived at our final guest. So joining me by phone from the opposite coast is Dr. Tom Wong, an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So you wrote a report for the Center for American Progress that has been cited in a lot of press in the the past few weeks. Um, And as we've been trying to get our heads wrapped around this issue of sanctuary. Uh, And in it, you analyzed FBI crime data on sanctuary jurisdictions and had some surprising findings. Can you tell us what you found? Yeah, thank you. So the punchlines are that crime is less and economies are stronger in sanctuary counties compared to comparable non-sanctuary counties. So a little bit about the study, um, we were able to obtain data via a Freedom of Information Act request. So we're defining sanctuary counties the same way that Immigration and Customs Enforcement define sanctuary counties. And so what we are able to do is take all of that data, look at the crime rates in sanctuary counties, compare those crime rates to comparable non-sanctuary counties, and the data are striking. About 36 fewer crimes per 10,000 people in sanctuary counties compared to non-sanctuary counties. And across a range of economic indicators, we're seeing stronger economies from higher median household income to lower poverty. Why do you think those, those realities show themselves? Yeah, I think in terms of fewer crimes, this is something that law enforcement executives have you know, have said for decades, partnering with federal immigration enforcement is damaging to the relationship that local police have with immigrant communities. And to the extent that there is that partnership, then trust the roads. And if immigrant communities are less trustful of local law enforcement, then it's harder to keep communities safe. So when it comes to the crime results, I think we have a explanation here that validates what law enforcement executives have been arguing. When it comes to the economic findings, this is where we are more surprised and I think have more digging to do. Uh, Immigration advocates have for a long time talked about the economic costs of deportation. So in addition to the moral costs, for example, separating families, Um, Immigration advocates have said that deportations actually create strains on local economies. And so when we look at the data from higher poverty, for example, in non-sanctuary counties, as well as higher public benefits usage, what we're seeing is potentially a validation of what immigration advocates have also been arguing. So the process goes something like this. When you have a locality uh, engaging in aggressive immigration enforcement and removing individuals from the economy, then you're losing the workforce. And when you lose, for example, breadwinners, um, then that makes their families more economically vulnerable. When their families are more economically vulnerable, then that places a higher burden on localities to step in, for example, through public benefits. And so we're seeing some of these processes uh, suggested in the data. 
So you talk about the importance of these relationships. You know, we were just speaking with a county executive here in Maryland who um, said he's against this type of uh, law in the, in the local jurisdiction context because he says it gives a false sense of security because the local jurisdictions can't control uh, what the feds do. If that is the reality, what is your take and what is your response to that argument? Yeah, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what sanctuary policies actually are. So when it comes to this false sense of security, I would agree somewhat, um, but disagree on balance. So when I think about a false sense of security, we don't want to give undocumented immigrants the impression that localities will be able to resist every effort on the part of the feds to enforce immigration. That simply isn't true. But that shouldn't limit localities and their efforts to protect all of their residents. And by protect, this is where we get into what sanctuary policies actually are. So one of the core components of a sanctuary policy is not complying with ICE detainer requests. So a detainer request is where ICE is asking a local jail, for example, to hold an individual for up to 48 hours after their initial release date. Now, in early 2014, a lot of localities uh, were sued and they lost for complying with ICE detainers. So essentially, keeping somebody for 48 hours beyond their initial release date um, is a form of unlawful detention. And this is detaining them without, without charge? Without charge, without anything, just holding. Exactly. So somebody, you know, might be in a local jail for a, you know, traffic violation. Um, They're held. They're about to be released. uh, But then ICE, uh, via the detainer, is saying, well, hold this individual for 48 additional hours so that we can come in and pick this person up for immigration enforcement purposes. And so if a locality is saying no to detainers, which, again, have been found to be a form of unlawful detention, that's something that I think all localities should take seriously if they want to, one, protect their residents, but two, also enforce uh, laws that are consistent with you know, our constitutional protections. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about this issue? One of the biggest misconceptions revolves around what sanctuary policies do. So sanctuary localities are not violating federal law. Um, They're doing two things. One, they are either choosing explicitly to not ask about immigration status, to not use local funds to put uh, staff time or local police time on inquiring about the immigration status of an individual. That is not a violation of federal law. And another misconception is around the use of detainers. When a locality is saying no to a detainer, it's not saying that it's not going to cooperate with ICE. It is saying that detainers have been found to be a form of unlawful detention. And so the locality doesn't want to get sued because, again, in early 2014, we saw a lot of localities on the wrong end of these lawsuits, and they had to pay out tens of thousands of dollars uh, to individuals. And so sanctuary localities are actually in compliance with the law. They are not the lawless um, places that President Trump makes them out to be. You've been listening to my guest, the University of California, San Diego political scientist, Tom Wong. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on Future City. 
Thank you. As we're getting ready to wrap up the show, as usual, I just want to give a few final thoughts. This issue feels very personal to me because I come from a family of immigrants. My grandparents first came to this country in the 1950s. My grandfather was a native of Jamaica, and my grandmother was born in Cuba. And while they came here as documented immigrants, many of the families I grew up with, I couldn't tell if they were or they weren't. All I knew was that they loved us, and they cared for us, and all of us shared the same American dream. From a deportation policy standpoint, where we are now isn't a huge departure from where we were under the Obama administration, which deported people in record numbers. But bigger picture, when it comes to how we think and we talk about our neighbors, things couldn't feel more different now. The president's immigration order isn't about policy. It's a devaluing of undocumented people's basic humanity. It says to people I grew up with, live in fear because our dreams can never coexist. Right now, 11 million undocumented people live amongst us. Every day they share our schools, our workplaces, and our homes of worship. And they believe in the American promise as deeply as we do, and sometimes more. Those who have made an honest life here, those are the type of neighbors that I want in my future city. Future City is produced by Mary Wiltenberg and edited by Aaron Hankin. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org, or just hit me directly on Twitter, and my handle is at Westmore1. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. You can also hear this episode and past episodes online at wypr.org slash future city until next time for 88.1 WYPR your NPR news station I'm Westmore funding for future city is provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation <laughs>